the amount of thinkers somebody like Mark Fisher can just pull all together is really astounding because I was um it's on the leftology medium page, which I don't think many people check out, but I, I wanted to do a uh, video essay series on the capitalist realism and just go chapter by chapter. Cause I, I, I had a friend who, um, who was reading through it, but it, it's just um, sometimes for people, it's not easy to read books or they just don't have the time to. Um, so I was trying to like condense it. And chapter one of Mark Fisher's uh, capitalist realism is like 11 pages. And the, the book in total is maybe 95, I think. Um, yeah it's a small book it's about there but the amount of just different topics discussed in 11 pages like it that could be an entire book on its own if mark fisher felt like it it's yeah for sure it is absolutely insane um what did i get i got about the thousand twelve hundred words out of it just trying to explain it pull it down but there's at least like four different sections within that first book or first chapter not first book um yeah it'll I need to record that soon. Um, I was trying to record it in here, um, but I can't because um, Zoom doesn't pick it up. But when I'm trying to record on Streamlabs, it will pick up the air conditioning in my dorm that's like constantly going off. And I was like, I'm, I have, I have oh, higher. Because, because Zoom has like an auto like attempt to get rid of the background and Streamlabs, you can kind of mess with that, but it's not like you have to do it yourself sort of. Right? Yeah, I don't know enough about compression and filters and stuff like that just that's i i know i make music and i know i should probably <laughs> understand what those things means but they're just they're um just out of my uh, league i guess um do you do you use premiere pro by any chance for music for your like editing like videos and stuff like that i need to use an actual um editor uh, but i just use um someone suggested shotcut to me and it's what I use, even though it crashes like every time I try to make a video at least once. Um, yeah, I, I probably do need to advance if I do want to keep making these videos, which I, mean, I it's do. It's expensive, so I get it. Um, but Premiere Pro has a nice denoiser um, effect that you can put on your audio and it'll take out any like hums or anything in the background. So that would, that would probably fix that for you. Yeah, that, that would probably help. There might be a denoiser filter on Streamlabs. I'm not sure. I need to check a, around for that. Um, but hello, everybody. Welcome to the uh, Leftology podcast. Um, today, we're doing a little bit differently in that we're discussing a book. It's uh, Sigmund Freud's Ego and the Id. Um, I've just been thinking about the, uh, I guess, Oedipus complex because I'm, I'm reading through anti-Oedipus right now. And I wanted to see uh, both go back to the original text because... Um, I guess I'm also reading through Freud's introductory lectures. So the best way uh, he puts it is that um, everybody has a um, understanding of psychoanalysis one way or another, either they've actually learned it before or they've learned it through misconceptions that society may have taught them. So I wanted to go back to the original text, discuss the Oedipus complex. And um, I guess that's the center of the, of the, um, the conversation today. Uh, but I guess, to open up my own thought, the way I came into this book was um, once I got to the Oedipus complex, which only comes the fourth chapter, I want to say, out of the out of the five in this sh really short book. Uh, I was trying to figure out if there is this way that, um, as Deleuze and Guattari critique it, that you can take out the mother and the father and still preserve the uh, essence of an Oedipal complex, I guess, rather than... Um, just it having to be these connections to the um, mother and the father eternally 
or through the life of this person. Um, I don't, what perspective did you go into it when you were originally reading it a while um, back? Really for me, um, when I was going into a lot of Freud's work, I mean, for me, I'm definitely more into Lacan. So all of my yeah. stuff I was trying to get was trying to see, okay, what did Freud initially state so I can see where Lacan took this. Um, that, that's basically my whole thing. I'm not much of a Freudian, I'm more of a Lacanian. So um, as much as Lacan's whole thing is this return to Freud, um, there's definitely transformations of Freud in Lacan, even though he is staying pretty close or attempting to stay as close as possible, I guess, to what Freud originally said. Um, but, you know, with his three registers, things definitely change. Like, for instance, uh, in this work, um, to be precise, um, the id is now like the ego ideal. And this fits into like... Um, in Z in uh, Lacan's work or in... Yeah, yeah. So in Lacan's work, it changes to the ego ideal and it's part of um, the symbolic. Um, so we have all three of these, the ego, the id, and the... Um, super ego all fit into one of the registers um and so i was trying to understand it from that sort of perspective the, the it is the ego ideal or the ideal ego so because I, I i remember reading through um introducing lacan by um Zizek, and there's those two different ones yeah so i believe the ego ideal is the um is what we would be saying when we say the id the ideal ego I think is what we see ourselves as because the ideal ego exists within the imaginary. So it's what yeah. like we think we are. And then the ego ideal is the symbolic. So it's more like what we want to, to be um, from the, like what, how we want to be perceived from like the um, big other. So yeah. this is like the, um, what like, so you have your, Ideal ego, which is you, ego ideal is where you wish you were or what you're trying to be in the- um, The ego is somewhere in between. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess, um, I mean, I haven't read much Lacan other than through Zizek or through um, maybe some unconscious or uncon machinic unconscious happy hour episodes. Um, <laughs> but um, what's really surprised me uh, with this particular text, the ego and the id, was just kind of how it's, it's it restructures the id ego and superego not within maybe freudian theory but just kind of the perception i kind of that like a introductory psychology course will give you like mine did an i had an ap psychology class in 10th grade and it kind of really did not align with what i guess freud is kind of um, saying here and that everybody just starts out with this like i guess the best way to put it is this plane of id um, the drives, I guess, is the best way to put it. And then the ego forms within the id, and then the superego forms within the uh, id and the ego. So at the ego and the superego are these borrowed drives that are um, combined with perception or um, social forces to push us back down the death drive, I guess. Um, mm. You would know a little bit more about that than I do. Um, but it's just all of it's like having a really big circle and then a smaller circle and then the smallest circle rather than the ego is trying to balance act between this id and super ego which yeah, it, it yeah. kind of also is doing but it's not the best way to put it with at least for this text yeah for sure and i think when you're talking about what um you reference this twice what people like think is being said in freud and what is actually being said um 
actually uh speaking of podcast um why theory does a really good job um the guys over there mm -hmm. explaining how a lot of these will have like um sort of conceptions of them that are not at all close to what Freud was talking about. Yeah. Um, the only one that may be sort of close, or at least it's sort of at the essence, I wouldn't say it's necessarily gods it down necessarily, is the ego. Because like when we are like saying like, you know, this person has like a huge ass ego, like yada, yada, we're getting at something that's close, but it's not like the full thing, but it's the closest thing. If you ask someone what the super ego is, or you ask them what the it is, you know, normally you're going to get probably something someone learned in their AP psych class that is like a caricature of what Freud said. Yeah, I, th I think the id, I think is probably second closest and sometimes maybe is the closest because it's just these uh, raw based desires is how it's been explained. And that doesn't necessarily really change. Um, maybe a little bit. It's a little mm. bit more expansive than that, but it's one of the closest. But the superego is just kind of completely misconstrued because um. I want to say her name is Dr. McIntyre, maybe it's slightly different, but I was listening to a, um, it's a podcast lecture series. I think it's the philosophy of psychoanalysis or something like that. Um, I was listening to that last summer and it's just kind of a, a flipping of that idea of the superego is some like rational, it's, it's thought of as our rational forces. Um, when in, when in Freud, Lacan, um, and so on, it's not really a rational force. It's a, um, I think Freud describes it as a super moral force that imposes upon us. Um, yeah, it's 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 like a um, a moral force that makes us feel feel guilt, uh, yeah. pretty much. And it's it's not it's not pleasant. You know, it's not something that like um, we enjoy in any sense of the word. It's it's it, you can almost think about it as like it being a Kantian within this. You know, your psyche. Um, yeah. Telling you that you're doing all these things wrong and making you feel very guilty for them. Yeah, and I think that's what um, I forget how it's pronounced. You just said it like ten minutes ago, but Zupatnik is that Zupanchik? Yeah, Zupanchik. Um, I think that's the premise of the ethics of the real, which, as I said, is on my shelf, but I haven't read it. I found it at a used bookstore. <laughs> but it's just the the super ego is is most in line with like a Kantian ethic system of you're never going to be good enough. It you can only do it without a pure intentions, and it's just always always impose it posing where you mm. like and practically i think in kantian ethics there's very like kant just um i remember reading through um the, the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals and more time is spent explaining that you're going to be moral for the majority of your lifetime than talking about when you actually are going to be moral i'm fairly sure like yeah, he's just, I, I think that's right yeah like uh what is it the the death man there or the dying man on his deathbed um being nice for absolutely no reason at all he has nothing to gain from it other than the just being nice he knows he's yeah. going to die he will get no pleasure or pain out of it something like that and it's just like yeah. extremely rare and it's like that's that's kind of what the superego is getting at um on the opposite side it's just you're only going to be good enough a very few amount of times yeah and then making you feel guilty throughout your yeah. life for for not living up to that yeah I, I really need to open that book but i have like 20 books ahead of it on my reading list <laughs> i i get that like i said i went to the bookstore and i'm i now have seven more books i need to read so that that's me um it does not help that uh in my college town there is a bookstore that sells paperbacks for a dollar and hardbacks for two so i'll just it's cheap yeah. <laughs> but i'll just walk out there with like a stack of books every single time <laughs>
that sounds great actually it is amazing um it would be amazing if it was like in a place like chicago or new york where um you get higher um donations but i'll take what i take most of my uh freud collection is from there actually that's where i got all those little tiny small books oh yeah 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 i think i have like 10 different books with an introduction by peter gay in them now (laughs) (laughs) which is absolutely because every single one of these like the blue or red books comes with the introduction by peter gay yeah i have a few of those i also have some like older ones that i found at used bookstores because they were the ones that were there but i've seen plenty of those i think i at least have three that are of that cover um yeah and not to mention all my pdfs that i also <laughs> use well he is uh most of his works public domain now right um i'm not 100 percent on that Honestly. It should be around, um, what is it, Future of Illusion should be probably the most recent work, or the, the least recent work that isn't public domain, maybe. Hmm. Um, just because it's 1927. I think that's about where the copyright's at right now, which is a little yeah. bit off track, but... So where do we want to swing this into? Are we Do we want to stick with Freud? Do we want to, like... Um, um, I guess I'll, I'll stick what... with this book for a while um, and then we can get to the death drive because you just came out with a big video on that. Um, it'll be in the links or it'll be in the description below for everybody watching this video. I, I um, appreciate that. <laughs> but the the idea that I came in with, um, as I was talking in the beginning, trying to delusify the Oedipus complex, take out the father and the mother as these like necessary forces. Um, Maybe in the sense of like, uh, I just started reading Franz Fanon and um, his influence being Alfred Adler, making the superego into this kind of like social imposed force rather than just being these, uh, the, the figure of the mother, the figure of the father. Um, just coming into this, I, I realized at the end of the book, I was talking with my friend at uh, the coffee shop the day, the day after I finished this, or actually the day of, I, of me finishing this book um and i was thinking through of it and i I think it's this um in the fifth chapter freud finally gets to this interplay between eros the the forces of i guess enjoyment is probably the closest word i can use jouissance which um a lot of people use to describe that and death um and there's one particular one that stuck with me um and it's the grasshopper example i think in that um freud is trying to see how the death tricks eros into letting it have its drives, I guess, in that um, for the grasshopper or the mantis, whatever it was um, using as its example, it has um, sexual intercourse and then immediately it dies afterwards. Mm. So what I was coming into this with, it's, um, I guess a continental phrase would be the best way to put it in that uh, Lacan's going back to Freud, but I'm trying to go back to Sophocles. Okay. Go okay. back to. <laughs> so, what I was I was thinking of with the fusions, which trying to develop the ideas I, I came into it with, with the the terminology that Freud's creating, is that um, Oedipus as the the Oedipus the king structure and the the prequel that's like you find out during the story. I don't know if there's actually a prequel play or not, or if it's in um the play after that Oedipus describes uh, killing his father unknowingly and going against the phoenix um because mm. i didn't read that part in english class but it's 
it seems like it's a, a three-act structure, I guess is the best way I can put this fusion that the Oedipus complex is, in that there, um, the death drive is meaning, eros, and then the death drive is punishment. Um, so that's the idea I, was, I got out of this, I guess, if I really want to recontextualize Oedipus. Okay, so can you elaborate a little bit on the death drive as meaning? Um, so the death drive is meaning like that's just the um, the superego forces without the punishment, I guess, is the best way to put it um, for Oedipus, uh, the king as a play. That would be the fates. Um, so the fates tell Oedipus that um, your life will result in this. You will um, kill your father, have sex with your mother, um, stuff like that. And there's also in that the understanding of the taboo. Um, that those would be the two meanings that um, you will do this um, and you will get punished for it, I guess. But okay. in that, there's a fusion with Oedipus in that I'm trying to do my best to explain this, um, but I don't necessarily have the complete language for it. But the death drive enables the Eros drive in trying to avoid that. Or it's either trying to avoid that or knowing that it will happen. Okay, so you have, you're kind of onto something. So if we look at the death drive, what it seems like you're pointing to is... Uh, Lacan definitely could have come up with this way before me, so... It seems like you're thinking of, so you have the death drive, and then in Freud, you have the um, drives of uh, self-preservation, right? Yeah. Um, and they almost act as if they're against the, the death drive, but in the end function to bring um the death drive to its like um to its the death drive can be enjoyed uh like um what was it freud's um explanation of somebody who uh the superego imposing on the will or the the will of the ego uh, saying you're not good enough the ego directs it outwards onto the world rather than onto itself in self-preservation mm -hmm. um i mean i still have to work on this i could do a eventually once i go to doctoral school i could do like a little paper on this if i ever wanted to spend time on psychoanalysis because <laughs> that's when i'll be able to take actual um classes on it but to me it kind of seems um especially when applied there is kind of a cyclical nature to it in that the uh the first death drive only leads allows arrows because it knows that second death drive is coming the punishment is coming um the best way i could describe it as um there was one eating disorder that came up in my mind as an example trigger warning for those that that triggers um obviously but i guess bulimia was the closest example i could think of in that one is allowed to eat because one knows that they will throw it up mm. okay yeah yeah i can i can see that yeah i think like like you're still like really on to this like it's it's i don't think, I think it escapes correct. freud but it's like yeah i think differentiation i think i think well yeah i think this is the movement i would say you're pretty close to the movement from freud to how lacan ends up interpreting the death drive because right and freud you have the um death drive versus Eros. i think this is partly from my understanding of lacan and Zizek is how i'm, I'm reconfiguring this because i from my understanding um mostly as i said machinic unconscious happy hour is that by the time you get to these thinker, the superego kind of helps the in, in a way. 
Yeah, so one thing, um, if we're going to go right into the super ego and Ed, um, something I took from Shijak actually that I wanted to write down for this was sort of explaining the, their relationship. Um, and so one thing that we run into with Freud that we've kind of fixed in Lacan is um, we try to determine which force, right, is the bad force. Is the superego actually morally good or is the id or the ego ideal in Lacan what's actually like good? Which one is like the one that's actually the thing we're supposed to follow and which one's leading us towards being like um, yeah. terrible people. Um, and what Lacan does is he brings in the uh, law of desire as a sort of fourth agency within the psyche to sort of fix this, um, this problem. Um, so I have this little quote here. Uh, For Lacan, the seemingly benevolent agency of the ego ideal, which leads us to moral growth and maturity, forces us to betray the law of desire. So the ego ideal, the what we're trying to make ourselves be, doesn't always line up with necessarily exactly um, exactly of the of my desire, right? So I end up yeah. betraying my desire in order to look this way to the big the big other. Um, by way of adopting the reasonable demands of existing socio-symbolic order. So yeah, like right there, the I would say this goes into Lacan even saying that language itself alienates us, um, which would put us into the symbolic, which then allows us not to ever really achieve our desire. Um, so in a way, we're betraying our desire because of the symbolic and the ego ideal. And then um, the superego, which we know um, makes us feel guilty, um, it is, it's going to be averse to this because actually what the superego wants us to do is make us feel guilty um, and put pressure on us for betraying the law of desire. So yeah. here he writes, the guilt we experience under the superego, um, superego pressure is not illusory, but actual. The only thing of which one can be guilty is of having given ground, to relative, ground relative to one's desire, which is that really famous quote from Lacan. So really the relationship is is that in order to meet the standards of the symbolic of the big other we betray our desire and then um in order to fit the ego ideal right which is going to be influenced by the socio-symbolic order um and then we're going to get feeling guilty from the uh from the super ego for betraying our own desire no matter you know like our desires can be really fucked right they can be really messed up and we betray them out of, you know, trying to be this image of us that we want to be um, that is, you know, relevant to whatever we have created as like good or bad within the symbolic. Um, so it's really like, it seems to be a really mess here because it feels like we can't really um, achieve can't really do what you, Yeah, because like, you have to go against your very desires to achieve this ego ideal which you in a way feels desirable but in reality is influenced by the symbolic and then you feel guilty for trying to live up to something that is supposed to be good right yeah um so they're at this sort of like war with each other which i think is like really common in any psychoanalysis you're gonna have like two things that are like doing the complete opposite of one another oh yeah that that reminds me and i, I looked to the right with um my now smaller air or my now smaller um psychoanalysis stack because i've trying to bring stuff home so I don't have to bring my entire bookshelf uh, back with me at once but like Eric Erickson um, his childhood in society um, 
you'll learn about that if you take a, um, anybody will learn about that when they take their, um, what is it, like the basic level psychology course. There's the seven conflicts, I think, which I, I haven't opened that book yet. I just own it because I was like, <laughs> oh, this is cool. It's $6. Thank you. Um, I'll take it. But yeah, the, the con, what is it? I think Erickson focuses on conflict a little bit more than the average person does um, in psychoanalysis, but it is a very common theme. Well, I mean, yeah, I think conflict is, um, even to re return to Freud, but um, <laughs> uh, even when we look at the superego, um, the ego and the id, I mean, that is like the, the psychical area of conflict. I mean, you have all of these sort of forces that are all, as much as they may stem from one another and be interconnected in some way, right? They are like at odds with one another at the same time. Um, and actually, I mean, this is where we got to ego psychology, right? Is yeah. um, there's this conflict and then the, the conflict in ego psychology um, was bad. It wasn't, it wasn't at all good. They wanted to get rid of the conflict, even though in Freud, he doesn't say that necessarily the um, conflict between these three like agencies is a bad thing. They take it that way and they go, well, what we need to do is we need to make the ego stronger to be able to fight off um, both of these other agencies so people can live a happy life, yeah. um, which obviously I disagree with. But I mean, I think conflict, antagonism, <laughs> to use my Socratic is uh, anti-happy life. <laughs> well, I, like, I don't think that'll actually lead to happiness is what I, I would uh, say. Um, but I would say like antagonism, um, which, you know, is obviously I have Hegelian influence. So I'm going to uh, say that antagonism. That's kind of how I'm coming into it as well. Yeah, it's, it's, totally, it's totally necessary. Um, and it's going to exist. Antagonisms are everywhere. And that's why it's central, I think, to a lot of psychoanalysis. Like even in the death drive, we have the antagonism of our desire to achieve object A, which is, you know, a non-object. Yeah. Um, and then the conflict of the drives to make us fail that, that thing and repeat over and over and our like enjoyment from suffering, basically, you know, joy sans. Yeah. Um, I mean, you reminded me of, uh, when I was reading, uh, the how to read Lacan book, um, I think it's on the back cover exactly, but, um, how Zizek describes how Lacan retools psychoanalysis, which I've, I've used in a couple classes now to discuss, um, different things. Um, Ironically, I think I'm going to end this um, this couple paragraphs I'm on with a Graham Harmon uh, reference, <laughs> uh, but we'll get to that later. But it's um, Lacan's, Lacan and I think Marcuse too, but Zizek obviously doesn't talk about Marcuse in a book about Lacan, um, are kind of shifting Freud to where Freud um, in the psychoanalysis of his time is trying to ease enjoyment by getting other things out of the way. Um, or that's typically how it's seen. You get the id or the superego out of the way so the ego can enjoy itself um, so that you can have sex again or whatever uh, normally. Um, but Lacan and Marcuse um, are coming in and saying that um, enjoyment is, you're enjoying too much, honestly. Um, you need to learn to not enjoy. Um, and partly what I get out of that, um, they might've said it, uh, I need to read more of both of them, but there's kind of, once you stop enjoying, which capitalism doesn't let you uh, stop enjoying um, if capitalism is running properly, you have that moment of being able to reflect on one's enjoyment. 
um, to understand how one enjoys, the implication of how one enjoys. Um, and both of them want to be able to analyze that. And where I'm getting at with, uh, I guess, Graham Harmon, even though he doesn't really, he's read Lacan, he's read Freud, but he's not doing psychoanalysis, is there's this, there is this moment in object-oriented ontology where he's talking about how change must be earned. Of course, he's talking about metaphysics in the outside world um, and trying to find out where, um, answer questions like the ship of Theseus, where when does one ship become another? Um, I, I think that's also needed in this, uh, the ability to not enjoy, is that the ability to not enjoy is the ability to reflect and change. And I, I've been working around, it's just like, if I'm going to apply Graham Harmon's statement and flip it into the mental realm, uh, make it more, I guess, somewhat idealist rather than his materialism, um, it would have to be in this area in that the the ability to reflect um he talks about what is it um it's something kind of i think he brings up biology about this of two different really small organisms coming together um i forget the the part of the cell that makes the um that does the energy do you remember that um the uh mitochondria, mitochondria. Yeah, yeah yeah like the mitochondria and the uh the nuclei coming together to create something new, two things synthesized to make a better thing. Uh, that might help Zizek with the Hegelian influence. But this, uh, this ability to reflect something collides uh, during this non-enjoyment period, I guess, would be the best way to put it. And you're able to reflect, uh, go through this process of where you're able to change how you enjoy something. And I, I think that's yeah. kind of the importance of these thinkers. Um, I don't necessarily remember exactly where I was supposed to get with this but that's just kind of my, my thoughts on this thing is, is um, psychoanalysis changed once you're allowed to enjoy uh, once they wanted you to be able to enjoy the other one wants you to stop having to enjoy yeah so I think we can take this enjoyment idea with um, talking about capitalism right um, I think you were really correct when you said capitalism wants you to enjoy and, and enjoy it like more, I like a surplus, right? Like a surplus enjoyment. Yeah. And um, this gets into Zizek's work where he talks about this. The reason we're calling to not enjoy is because what's happening in capitalism is our super ego is demanding us to enjoy at a surplus. And that surplus stems from a death drive. That's where we get surplus, um, that's where joy science exists, right? That's where any sort of surplus satisfaction whatever form that may take, it doesn't have to be enjoyment, but in capitalism, it's enjoyment. So one way to um, kind of fight against capitalism and fix a lot of our psychological problems is to fight against that super, super ego demand of um, you must enjoy and enjoy to like the end. Like yeah. um, we end up enjoying to our detriment basically, which is where the death like drive gluttony. comes into play. Yeah, like glut well, gluttony is a great example. I think Zupanchik and what it, what is sex, she uses that as an example of the death drive where you are enjoying in order to, um, like first you start, right, because you're hungry and then you start because there's enjoyment from that. And then now the enjoyment sparks the, the eating instead of the hunger sparking the eating, which leads to enjoyment. Now the demand to enjoy sparks the eating, which is, where you get gluttony, which overall is to your detriment. 
um, enjoying a, a surplus is, is, is detrimental to you. Um, and it is what leads us to, you know, us to our end and like an almost death drive sense, if you will. Yeah, that's a, I guess, common, but very interesting way to, to, to just kind of point out the, um, the death drive. It's just because like, I guess when I read the death drive, the first thing I think of is just like suicide, basically. Um, but this kind of goes back to the grasshopper example in that death allows for Eros knowing that death will um, be the result or the death drive will be the end result to some degree. Yeah. Yeah, I think in uh, um, this gets the death drive gets really. I, I love that we got into the death drive, but the death drive gets really complicated within Freud because um, at first he presents them as being opposed, right? And then, like you said, like in the grasshopper example, um, it exists to kind of allow to to get to death, right? Um, it, it exists because it's in in opposition, but it's not in total opposition because it's the thing that leads to it. Um, and then Freud at first completely puts Eros and um, the Death Drive against each other. Um, but through his work, he ends up actually saying what, the, what Eros, the pleasure principle, wants to do is get rid of excitation. And that's the exact same thing that the Death Drive is attempting to do. Uh, so in reality, they are basically the same thing. Um, and I think that's a really uh, interesting takeaway. I don't hear many people like I guess until I was really getting into that drive, I hadn't heard many people talk about that part of Freud within the death drive where he ends up instead of having them opposed, which is what people often think. If you go Google, you know, death drive, you're going to find the opposition between death drive and Eros. But what Freud ends up coming to the conclusion is, is that they're, they're the same thing. And the, the only difference is that you have the self-preservation, um, which I believe stems from Eros, which is going to keep us, detouring around our death which gives us yeah gives us life right it allows us to die differently as zupanjik says yeah that that's kind of what i know there was a, a note of that when i was reading through this especially during the, the fourth chapter i think or it, it, the beginning of the fifth chapter but it wasn't something that um, you brought it to the front of my mind you you took it out of my pre-conscious <laughs> and put it in my conscious um to use freudian terms but it's like I was coming into this from, I haven't read Beyond the Pleasure Principle, but my my basic understanding of what it's talking about, seeing these as opposing forces. And while I do think the ego and the id as a book still keeps them as somewhat opposing forces, I was noticing, I was like, these are not exact opposites here. That They're working together a lot more than I thought that they ever would. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I for sure, if you read Beyond the Pleasure Principle, which I believe this comes after, right? I think in- Three the, years. The, yeah, and in the introduction, he kind of says that it's a sort of continuation from Beyond the Pleasure Principle or something along those lines. Um, if you read through Beyond the Principle, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, which I did recently uh, way too much, um, yeah, you'll see him get to that because what he ends up getting to is his solution is the sexual drives uh, throughout Beyond the Pleasure Principle because he wants to find, he's trying to find what is causing um, repetitive trauma like people to repeat their trauma and he ends up finding out the death drive isn't the solution to that and actually through that he ends up finding out wait this death drive idea i had that i was trying to oppose the pleasure principle are really not um against one another in any like meaningful sense and so i imagine from then on if we look again the um 
civilization and its contents, right? He writes, he can't think in any other way after he comes to like the death drive. So the rest of his work has this like subtle tone about how the death drive and the pleasure principle are like working together. I need to finish that. I, I, I kept that on my shelf, but I've only finished the uh, second chapter, first and second chapters. Of uh, which one? Civilization and its discontents. It's I, enough- read a, I didn't finish it. I read enough of it that I got what I needed to about the death drive out of it. And it's sort of how transference functions within the death drive onto society and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, I, I got enough to get to the Rome example of um, what if Rome over the last 3000 years had every single building and every single moment where nothing was built at the same exact time. And th- there's your unconscious right there. <laughs> yeah. Which is, it's really hard to explain. So just, I guess, read it or watch a separate YouTube video on it because I do not understand it enough to uh, for the viewers um, to explain it right now. Yeah, what people should take from this um, this uh, this episode is uh, read Freud. It's worth it, I promise. Yeah, I think you, like, you don't have to agree with Freud, just read it. Yeah, just read it. Because I mean, I think we're both really into the continental tradition, right? I think like after Freud, a lot of the more interesting continental work that's being done um, is typically psychoanalytically, analytically informed. I mean, one degree um, or another, yeah. Yeah, like I think it's almost impossible to totally get away from it. Um, like, I mean, I've just picked up a book from Derrida, and Derrida's talking of on the back cover. I haven't read it yet. Um, I mean, he brings up psychoanalysis, and I believe he mentions Lacan in there. Um, Which work? uh it's difference and uh Repet- or difference in writing not, yeah difference in writing not difference in repetition i looked for uh, that i actually really wanted that one that um, was, um, was that's at the same barnes and noble the uh i found a thousand plateaus on they always seem to have one difference in writing text just sitting there and i'm just yeah i picked it up i don't know if i'll be able to get into it i i've never read derrida before but um i think it'll be fun to try I, I want that one because I'm kind of interested in Derrida and I'm also interested in um, what's his name Levinas which there's a mm. big 70 page Levinas essay in there yes or an essay uh, on I, Levinas I went through the like chapters and yeah there's a big section on Levinas um, but um, actually this made me think this is kind of off topic but the uh, as a, as a good Hegelian, I am interested in Deleuze, um, but I'm interested in Deleuze's two works, um, Difference in Repetition and Logic of Sense. Those are the ones I really- I haven't heard of like Logic of Sense before, but I think I have, someone I know um, is reading through Difference in Repetition. They haven't talked to me about it much, um, but that's, that's one book I need to get because it is, it's literary theory, right? Uh, yeah, I believe so, and it's, it's it's considered one of his like greatest like works, I believe, yeah. Be- before the um, Guattari period, right? Yeah, and then after that, you have like the um, anti Oedipus and uh, Capital- capitalism, Plantos. schizophrenia. Yeah, um, and then what is philosophy? I forget what other books they did. Yeah, together. what is philosophy was a big one too. Um, I haven't really gotten into much Deleuze though, but I would I would like to because I know a lot of people who or heavily influenced by Deleuze in some way. Yeah, there's a few books I, I really want to read um, that are influenced by Deleuze. Um, I forget what his name, I referenced him earlier. Uh, Graham Harmon? Yes, Graham mm-hmm. Harmon. Uh, 
the second to last chapter in object-oriented ontology is talking about the the contemporaries within the field of um triple o or skeptical realism one of them i think is called levi bryant and um his 2014 text is Deleuzian, it's both Deleuzian and informed and was very interested to me. Um, I don't have the book with me. Um, I don't have Graham Harmon's book with me. I haven't bought any by Levi Bryant yet. Um, mm. But it was talking about like these um, six different types of machines overall that all machines fit into. Um, all of them are relational um, in that I think one machine, it's like a dark machine or whatever he calls them or just kind of they're ignored. Um, bright machines are ones that aren't ignored. Uh, black holes are unavoidable. Um, just stuff like that. I, I would research mm -hmm. it on um, your own if interested, because I, I read a couple paragraphs on the um, the entirety of this, I think, 300 something page book. So <laughs> I'm not in a great position to describe it right now. Well, that sounds interesting. I mean, I want to read uh, Harmon at some point. Um, obviously, my Zizekian background sort of demands me to at least know what Harmon's talking about, right? Yeah, well, in a Hegelian sense, you you have to read both of them. I I think I might do my senior thesis on trying to like merge their philosophies together. Just be like, yeah, I, I know you're opposed to um, what is it, mat materialism, anti psychoanalysis, and you're opposed to uh, more idealist or dualist uh, I psychoanalysis. But I'm gonna mesh you together and create a political <laughs> metaphysics for my pleasure. One of those like now kiss moments, you know? Yeah, right? just like, just now kiss both of you. Uh, fifty and set. What is it? Fifty something and a seventy something. Both acclaimed, uh, at least nationally famous philosophers. Just... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd I'd be interested to explore sort of their um, where their antagonisms occur more. Um, obviously, I don't know really much about Harmon, so I can't say like what that would be. But I've only I mean, read his overall explanation is trying to it's like trying to explain all of Nietzsche's work by only reading yeah, yeah. Good and evil, which you <laughs> might be able to but it's going to be really simplistic yeah for sure um but I want to know like sort of where the antagonisms are between them because I think that's where like the most productive thought comes from as you take two big um strains of thought and you don't necessarily have to like merge them per se but like you look where the antagonisms are taking place and that's the place for investigation i think uh from from my knowledge at least I, I don't necessarily think i can sustain a huge segment of this podcast on this session section but um from my understanding of Harmon, it's that his his philosophy is coming in with a flat ontology which reduces everything to an object um so nothing is privileged to where in zizek he's coming through I think Zizek's a dualist, maybe. Um, uh, well, he's a materialist, but it's a very complicated materialism. Yeah, um, I've kind of been trying to find somewhere in between dualism and materialism. It's really like a mono-dualism. I don't know. Mm. It's really hard to explain. Uh, the I, mind doesn't exist without the world, but the mind is partially separate. Yeah, what I would say um, for Zizek is... His materialism is one of like um, that doesn't have matter. Um, everything, which sounds ridiculous, <laughs> um, but everything, yeah, I know. Um, but everything is phenomena, um, and it's not phenomena in the sense of like Kant, where we have the thing in itself, and then we have 
phenomena which is constrained to our minds is more so that there is just phenomena. It doesn't mean that our mind shapes the world. It's not mind, in, mind dependent. Um, phenomena, phenomena exist out there. So it's still like materialist in the sense that it isn't mind dependent. It exists out there. And, um, and he gets through there through, through Hegel, obviously, because this is what Hegel yeah. gets to. He gets to they're just being phenomena. He gets rid of the thing in itself in the sense that Kant used it. Um, Harman uses the thing in itself to a degree. I don't think it's in the same. Uh, he, he's definitely not a Kantian or a Neo-Kantian completely. Um, he calls it the real object um, in that it's not inaccessible, but only momentarily. Like um, if you've read Heidegger, the essence mm. of truth, I think, has uh, themes of that. Of that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we just get basically Zizek's materialism as a materialism without matter. There's just phenomena. Um, and then I believe his consciousness is like the phenomena of phenomena, like appearance as appearance, if that makes <laughs> any sense. Um, so his, he's still a materialist. It's just a very um, confusing uh, materialism um, that I can see why people would think he's a he's a dualist in the way that he talks because he does put the subject um, I think Harman actually in a conversation him and Zizek had Harman calls him a subject oriented ontologist right and uh, subject oriented ontology um, which I guess is kind of accurate but yeah that's the anyway. big difference I think between them is because Harman tries is he's like um I think he opens up with like humans are nowhere near a, an important part in the entire universe. So why are they half of our metaphysics? Yeah. Yeah. Just the, the subject object is kind of like most things think, are objects. Why is this get 50%? I think because a lot of how we come to terms with the world and what we see in the world is going to come from the subject. So I think like we have to understand the subject in order to understand the object, right? Um, because if we go into Lacan, for instance, uh, we can throw this back to psychoanalysis, yeah. we get into the symbolic. The symbolic is what's going to contour the world to be what it is. It's what we're going to get our um, concepts from. Um, and that's going to divvy up the world and make the world look like what it does. Mm -hmm. um, so there is no removing the um subjectivity from the objectivity uh there i think this you could kind of swing this to the hegel hegel's notion of like um man what is it um substance a subject and subject to substance where like what's out there is influenced by here and what is in here is determined by what's out there right there's a dialectical relationship going on yeah that's also the thoughts i had when smashing them together uh of that that dialectical it's kind of reciprocal um between an object mm -hmm. subject relation um and um there's one section i think it, it might only be a sentence or two no it's a couple paragraphs but um harman does talk about it and i think a few interviews but it, it's trying to distinguish or disprove claims of people like jordan peterson um where he's talking about um being like the lobster or being like um I forget what animal Harmon uses, maybe baboons. Um, but the idea is that every day they wake up and they reestablish their hierarchy through like fighting or whatever. And that's the way that Peterson wants you to think. Um, what was it? I remember uh, driving home uh, one day 
and I was watching a Plastic Pills video on uh, the Lobster God, Deleuze and Peterson. <laughs> was, and um, they, there was one thing that I've, I've used this joke multiple times on Twitter and in, in person, but um, Jordan Peterson's uh, philosophy is made for guys in bar fights over girls. That's all yeah. his philosophy applies to. Um, and I, I thought that was hilarious. Um, <sighs> I forget where I was going, but oh, I do remember where I was going. But um, Harmon is talking about like, reality is not like that at all if you look at society i do not have to fight for my place in the hierarchy every day like i don't have to reestablish it i'm connected to these objects and in, in the real world um that establish have established and will continue to establish my position within society my bank account my wallet my phone my social security number uh my my mortgage my deed um my job all these things are things i'm connected to that establish a connection to the real world and to the society that I don't have to wake up and have to wonder about. They're just kind of, I guess, subconsciously understood. And I wanted to take that and flip that in that the goal of psychoanalysis is to understand uh, the person's, um, or so Harmon's talking about how a person's relationship to society is defined by the objects that connect them to society. And I'm trying to flip that and say that a person has these objects that define society within the person, this the symbolic relationships. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, I think um, that follows through and is actually a really good critique of Peterson. I, I think like, what's funny. I love that I critique know, of Peterson, I, it's so funny. I think a really good way to get at Peterson too, right, is like if this idea of our hierarchies being determined by us putting our shoulders back and being tough, right, um, then why wouldn't all of us tough boy leftist over here already abolish capitalism, right? We just put our shoulders back strong enough and capitalism would be gone. But that doesn't seem to be occurring. Um, you know, all, any sort of movement, if that was the case, that it would happen. But I think like, yeah, there are systems in place um that are it's hard to talk about systems in this way because i i think society and the individual are both at play with them but systems are in place that do tell you where you are and where you're where you're supposed to be uh, to society right not not where you're supposed to be actually um that would know we don't have to go out and put our shoulders back and like fight for our place in the hierarchy or we're told where our place is and where one of the things the left is trying to do is fight against that, right? Um, which I think is a big, a big miss on, on uh, Peterson's side. Well, there's, I guess, two ends to it in that the, there's portions of the left. I think uh, MLs might understand this in a c corrupted way, I guess. And then anarchists just don't understand this. Um, <laughs> To some degree, I, I think some anarchists do, and then there's some, especially the ones just getting into theory that don't. But um, security, a lot of the times, is based on object relation, in that I, I would like to have access to medicine, access to antibiotics that aren't overused. And mm -hmm. uh, I would really like antibiotics not to be overused because that will hurt my object relations to being able to get surgery. Um, to I, Money provides some protection though it does oppress us in another way um arguably um in that i think some people i, I definitely don't hate anarchists in any way i really love uh, some anarchist critique and some is necessary but 
I would say you need to understand if you want this uh, revolution or eventual reform into socialism, either which way you lean, I guess, um, you have to be able to find a way to reconfigure these object relations, maybe create new systems as Foucault might offer of providing these um, object relations. Um, I have Power and Knowledge by Foucault, which is a collection of lectures and essays, I think. And he opens up with the discussion to Maoist. And um, you know how like Maoist or Marxist-Leninist will have like the people's police and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, I've only read through the first couple of pages, but Foucault is talking about, uh, this is another trend um, off topic, but he's talking about how we can't just slap the word um, people onto these things. We can't just say that they're communists now and then ultimately work for a, a post-revolution world. Um, they need to, we need to actually analyze what these institutions do inherently and see if these institutions are pro-people or anti-people. And if they're against people, we need to find a way to provide that same service that they're supposed to provide, at least ideally, without having to preserve all the bad things that this judicial system provides. Yeah, yeah, I think like it's important to remember that even if like these systems put us in places where we don't want to be or that that they're oppressive in some way it's not that having systems in place institutions in place are are bad it's it's the way in which they are in place um that is bad um so i mean that's what i would say at least i'm not an anarchist um i i i'm for a bureaucratic socialism if you will um and and in that case you know it's it's less about uh, getting rid of institutions, um, but more so either changing them in some way or supplementing Placing. them with something else. Yeah, like that that gets the service, like you said, that we need to be done, done um, without the negative drawbacks we're seeing currently. Which Foucault is in a very interesting position to anarchists, which I don't, I don't think you're, from my knowledge, you're not very red on Foucault. Um, neither no, am I. No. Um, but I mean, he, he I, I think he leans partially towards anarchists, at least on the critique side, but he's very skeptical, especially from what I know from the, the Chomsky debate in that you can't just expect these, uh, everything to go away and those power structures not to reemerge, um, which I think kind of actually gets us back to Deleuze and Marcuse, <laughs> um, ironically, um, and Fisher, I think, um, which was the start of the episode in that they're trying to, uh, their focus on the mind, their focus on psychoanalysis is kind of asking the question that Zizek asks, it's just like, what will happen the day after the revolution? Um, that's what I wanna know, um, is, is the quote. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, um, ironically, I think there's a Rick and Morty episode in season two that might best explain what I'm trying to get at. Um, if you remember the Purge episode, yeah, I have not watched Rick and Morty in forever. Okay. So I'm not, not going to um, remember. So for my basic, the basic explanation is, um, I forget the entire plot, but they end up on a cat-based, uh, like cat-humanoid type world. Um, and they get there the day of the purge. Um, so for the most part, they're trying to survive, but eventually they find out that there's a class divide and the rich are using, uh, are allowing for the purge so the poor don't kill them. Basically the same plot as the actual purge movies. Um, and in the end, they kill the rich and overthrow them um, with the robot suits that Rick and Morty have. Um, mm -hmm. And there's this moment 
where like right after right before rick and morty leaves rick's talking is just like uh you trade with him then he trades with this guy for this service and then you you all help each other and then right after they leave they start fighting and they're just like wait 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 i have an idea and they just basically just start they start doing the yearly purge over again so they don't end up killing each other yeah yeah i mean i think i think this is probably one of the most pivotal questions that leftists need to have an answer for um which is yeah like um what do, what do we do after the revolution you know Zizek's famous thing about selling his mother into slavery to get a fever vendetta part two um <laughs> <laughs> i think that's a really important question um something i'm working on right now doesn't necessarily answer that question but it definitely points towards that um and it also gives some criticism to some sides of the left that um, basically prevent us from ever answering that question. Um, I'm pulling from Zizek's The Courage of Hopelessness. Um, it's going to be pretty pessimistic. But uh, one aspect I really liked in that book is he talks about how revolutionaries oftentimes will propose revolutionary change um, in order to achieve its opposite. To never, um, and this this will bring us actually back to psychoanalysis, um, yeah. to achieve its opposite, to never actually change anything, to infinitely stand against the status quo. So you have a revolutionary call for some change that um, isn't going to happen clearly, right? Like it's it either doesn't make sense, it can't function. Um, like let's say we tear down all systems. Um, I don't understand how that's going to function. I don't. I can't. There is no world building there. So some sort of push for something like that with no actual concrete way of fixing anything, which means it can't ever be implemented, which means it's just standing against the status quo for its sake of enjoyment. It's gaining a surplus from repeating being against the status quo while never actually changing anything. Um, and then the right there is where you can get into the psychoanalysis of where this ends up affecting political um, thought is the way that we try to do radical change can't be and this way that gives way to a death drive of sorts in our terms of repetition of never actually changing anything as we go towards um our end as climate change and things like that are getting worse um yeah i, I don't think this is exactly the same but um for leotard's libidinal economy i know there's the portion where he talks about uh these the two marks is uh, which are described as the old man marks and the little girl marks of uh, the little girl marks is, it's ready to go let's get the revolution going and the old man marks is kind of like a judge where he's just indictment of capitalism after indictment of capitalism and he just wants to keep going over and over again kind of both aren't the best like you kind of have to mm -hmm. find that middle ground of where it okay let's let's do this when the uh, when we can but we also need to understand what we're trying to get rid of and what we need to do. Yeah, yeah, there needs to be a uh, plan. And this is one of Zizek's biggest critiques is the left doesn't have a program. Um, too divided. And we all think we're too smart. Well, yeah, we're too divided. <laughs> we're, we're too busy doing what he would call pseudo struggles, which is where we're fighting things that don't really matter. Um, so the Twitter, the weekly Twitter discourse that everyone rallies for as if it's a revolutionary it's... position that you, you know you morally grandstand in those senses like you are the right yeah. person this is correct and you fight for it like you should be fighting for like a radical change of some kind and we're so wrapped up in those that we don't actually create a program for the left to build off of to actually bring in some sort of uh communist socialist future yeah um 
I guess uh, I don't think either of us end up uh, with the position that uh, the culture and social struggle should just be forgotten like some people do. For sure. Um, but I, what I think is the worst about Twitter discourse in this is not only that it happens, but people kind of can expect which ones are going to happen again over and again. Because I know by the end of this year, we will have another Kink at Pride discourse week. Um, for at least the third time since I've been using Twitter, third or fourth time uh, since yeah. I've been using Twitter regularly. Um, <laughs> so that's it's just kind of insane that we just have to do, like every year, like a group of uh, leftists are just like, we have to read, everybody has to say their opinions on this one thing and we're all going to argue for, for a week. It's like, I yeah, it's, do not it's care not, enough about this topic, please. It's not that we shouldn't care about social issues to like a degree. It's just more so that a lot of how social issues are framed. Um, I'm using Twitter because I think Twitter is the prime example where nothing actually comes from. Yeah, Tumblr is a good example as well. Yeah, nothing Tumblr comes might be worse. I don't use Tumblr, thank God. I don't either. Um, <laughs> But yeah, and I, I mean, I think there's an enjoyment to be found for people, a, a, a joyousance in this sort of like pseudo struggle of like, you know, you're putting yourself in a position of argumentation um, that is like, it doesn't really matter. It's pointless. Um, and it's not that we can't actually care about a lot of these issues. A lot of these issues are real and we should talk about them. But in the way that they are argued and talked about, I think is, uh, it's just, I, it's, I, yeah. I would say that another problem with uh, Twitter discourse is the times you do get an actual fruitful con uh, concept to discuss uh, online, usually somebody has this insane take on it and then everybody has to talk about it, that insane take rather than like actually like their position on how this should be handled properly. Yeah, and it ends up just being like quote tweets of something saying like, oh my God, this person's insane. It's not like, it's not like, oh, well, I think this is incorrect because I think we should do yada 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 it's just some sort of standing of look how dumb this person is to say how sometimes smart. that's warranted but sometimes it's just like please sometimes when it's really bad you talk know talk about anything else whenever i'm talking about this i also want to totally admit i'm totally guilty of this as well oh I, I i'm guilty is... of this at least twice a month honestly I, it's hard to escape yeah i mean i don't i don't think it's something that really much of anyone gets gets out of it's just something that we should attempt to not engage with as much um, I'm not putting myself in a moral grandstanding position going, you all, all you people getting in your Twitter discourse. No, I mean, I'm guilty of it too. Um, yeah. But I think one of the first steps to creating some sort of program for the left, you know, to know what to do the day after the revolution, right, um, is, is just kind of to prefer not to, you know, in those cases. Yeah, I'd much rather be like, hey, guys, look at all these cool different brick types. We should look at that and then get zero likes like I did when I actually did tweet that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I try to be as, as practical as I can be now because I mean, Twitter gets you emotional sometimes. Um, but there's just, what was it? Um, like for city planning discourse, which that's what, another hobby I have. I'm always like, for most cities in America, there's going to be city boards that are uh, going to be left empty. So please apply for them if you are very pro-housing, because mm. who's going to be there if you don't apply? Old people in HOAs and landlords. And those yeah. are the people you do not want to be on those boards, and especially not to have a majority on those boards. Um, yeah, for sure. But that shit doesn't get any likes, so... Uh, 
Yeah. <sighs> trying to think of uh, anything else to talk about. I mean, we can we can end it here, and um, you can promote if you feel like it. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think we did a lot. We walked through. We started with uh, the, the ego and the id, the and ego, the id, id, and then got into death drive, and that took us all the way to political uh, stuff and then Twitter stuff. And I think like um, what I would want to really end this on is is actually analyzing that process. The fact that that is how this conversation went to me shows how important psychoanalysis is to understanding politics today. Um, I don't think there is a good politics that isn't psychoanalytically informed in some way. That's a pretty strong claim, but I, I stand by that because I think as, as we just did, you can go through and you can analyze almost anything, even Twitter discourse, and through an understanding of psychoanalysis, which could bring us to a better analysis of politics in general. Um, so I think like understanding even um, some basic Freud, understanding the ego, superego, um, and the id, and how those function with us expands to how these things are going to function societally as well. Yeah. And I think I think that's super uh, important. And basically, the takeaway is uh, read Freud and then continue reading psychoanalysis after that. <laughs> yeah, uh, like as I've gotten gotten into philosophy over the last year or so, um, I don't. I don't know if you remember how like philosophically I was trained. I was like a year and a half ago, but it was nowhere <laughs> near comparison. Um, but like I, I've been pushed further and further in the anti-humanist tradition of continental philosophy, um, mm -hmm. more towards post-structuralism, psychoanalysis, stuff like that, rather than uh, I guess Sartre would probably be the few. Uh, there's not many humanists in the continental tradition. Um, yeah, maybe somewhere within like existentialist most likely yeah any. that that's going to be about it um but just kind of anti-humanists not in they're not anti-humanity obviously uh for those that do not know those the difference between the two um but rather just the individual is kind of a concept that we might need to critique um people the divide between people and uh society is kind of a lot more grayer and um a spectrum than we really thought it would be mm -hmm. that it's kind of really hard to pin exactly where that you can slice that divide uh, down and it's just you can analyze these things give people kind of the benefit of the doubt to some degree and still the ability to change um that's kind of where i've landed um after reading all this stuff yeah for sure um you might end up in a different position but that's that's <laughs> where i am <laughs> Um, no, I mean, I, I think, I think, I think it's pretty, pretty accurate. Um, I think like the what you said about divvying up the individual from from society is uh, extremely difficult because I think they're insanely intertwined. And I also think um, critiquing what it is to be um, an individual or a subject is also should be center. Um, I think we we need to have an understanding of what it is in any sense to be. A subject what what is the subject um in order to do a lot of the thinking we want to do right um for instance like you can use psychoanalysis we hit the point that we realize and lacan that the subject isn't the the cogito and i think like a lot of people function on this idea that we are this cogito still um so i think like this kind of thought is super important to to in any way move society forward or us in our personal lives forward as well yep um, I, I think I'll end it here because, I mean, I do have a class in an hour, so I do need to start okay. preparing. Um, but um, I guess go ahead and 
promote the stuff that you would like. Um, and then you can DM me all the, the links that'll be the description below. I can't point to the bottom of the screen because this is Zoom, but, but they're down there for the listener. Um, <laughs> and right below the play button for anybody listening on Spotify. Yeah, y'all can uh, check me out at Isocratic on YouTube. Um, and then same, same name over at Twitter. Those are the only places I really frequent and putting out more theory-like stuff. So if this is things that you enjoy, that is where my channel is headed. And right now I have a video on the death drive that's out that's been popping off. And yeah. If you, if you understood this uh, convoluted uh, episode of just random continental and psychoanalytic uh, words, uh, you'll enjoy uh, Isocratic's videos. Um, I, I yeah, put in the comments, it's like, uh, what was it? Um, ep your video essay looked exactly like an epic philosophy video. <laughs> if it wasn't for yeah, your voice, it, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. I definitely got influenced by Plastic Pills and Epoch. Um, I definitely prefer more of the um, ambience of Epoch's work. Yeah. So I definitely leaned more that way than the more, you know, poppy in your face type of stuff that Plastic Pill does, even though I love his work as well. Um, well, everybody, please go check out their works, as I said in the description below. Uh, thank you for watching or listening, and I'll see you eventually. I do not have a episode schedule yet.